on this Good Friday when we gather in the name of our Savior, Jesus, to remember his crucifixion, his death on the cross on our behalf. It is truly good to gather in the name of him with those who love him, with those who have his same spirit in them. It's good to gather with God's people. And on this Good Friday, this Easter weekend, we're going to talk about something that possibly you weren't expecting. We're going to talk about irony. And so there are many different forms of irony, but the basic definition of that's ironic. So irony is the contrast of what is expected and what actually happens. So that's what it means to be ironic. So let me give you some examples of irony. A fire station that burns down. This is kind of ironic. A marriage concert who files for divorce. It's kind of ironic as well. What about a pilot who has a fear of heights? Or an anti-technology website? Or a teacher who fails a test? Or what about a Facebook post on how useless social media is? It's, all of these are examples of irony where the contrast of what is expected actually happens. And it's actually a very powerful tool in literature. And when used in writing, irony, typically the reader who is reading the account, the story, the reader knows something that the, the actors, the, the characters that are being written about, they don't know what's going on. But through use of irony as a reader, you know exactly what's happening in the story. So it's ironic. And so an example of that would be with Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. At the end of the story, Romeo doesn't know that Juliet is only asleep, but the reader knows that. And so it leads to it being ironic. Now, the Bible is literature. So we must not forget that when you read God's word, you're reading literature. God revealed himself using human words. Now, God had to actually condescend because he is so infinitely beautiful and glorious and wise and magnificent and indescribable that there's no way that humans that are finite and created with limited understanding and wisdom, there's really no way that we could ever begin to comprehend the vastness of God if he did not come down and reveal himself using human language. And even using human language, at times we, we fail to grasp the infiniteness of who God is and how much he loves us. And yet, because God is so good to us, he uses human words revealed and recorded in his word, the Bible. We're able to get a better sense and understand what God is like and who we are and how to relate to him and why Jesus came. But nonetheless, when you read the Bible, you are reading literature, and there's different forms of genres in the Bible. So sometimes you read poetry in the Psalms, or wisdom literature in the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. You can read prophecy in Daniel, Ezekiel, or in Revelation. You can also read epistles or letters written by Paul, for example, to churches in particular cities in the ancient world. And so there's many different kinds of writing. And when you're reading the Bible, it's important to know what are we reading. Because it helps you understand what God is saying about himself and the absolute truth that is contained in the word. 
And the Bible also uses irony. It's a literary device. It's a tool to convey truth. And so the Holy Spirit inspired one of the disciples named Matthew to record the life of Jesus. The first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Please turn there in your Bibles to chapter 27. And we're going to see how the Spirit inspired Matthew through irony to reveal a great deal about who Jesus is, why he died, and why it matters to you and me today on this Good Friday, this Easter weekend. Let me give you the brief context as we pick up in Matthew 27. Jesus had been ministering for three years publicly, but the religious and the political authorities hated him. They could not stand him. They hated his popularity. They feared his power. They doubted his motives. They could not stand Jesus and wanted him removed out of the way to preserve their religion and their way of life. And so what they did is they arrested Jesus on false charges. They had an overnight kangaroo court. They convinced the governor, Pilate of Rome, to have him executed, convicted for treason, again, on false charges. And so in Matthew 27, verse 27, you pick up the story with the Roman guards preparing Jesus for crucifixion. And so let's read Matthew 27, 27 through 50, this whole account. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found the man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. For the people that were present on that day, that were watching this unfold, this crucifixion and death of Jesus was truly shocking and very unexpected. And yet, it was not shocking to our God in heaven. He is sovereign and was in complete control of everything that was taking place that day at his crucifixion and death. Let me give you the primary truth from this text that we just read. The main idea that will govern our, our thoughts this morning is that the crucifixion of, and death of Jesus proves that he is the Messiah. So we just read the crucifixion and death of Jesus proves that he is the Messiah. Messiah, he is the anointed one, the one sent from God to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises that God had made. As Messiah, he is the only hope. He is the suffering servant who's fulfilling that role promised 700 years earlier. He is a fulfillment of all of the promises and prophecies and aspirations to save Israel. Jesus is the Messiah. And so every single detail that we just read, every single one, God has complete control. And everything that you see here that we just read is designed to just cry out clearly one truth. It's to validate Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is what you're reading here. It's crying it out very clearly based upon Old Testament prophecy. He is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Trust in him. So let's look at the four primary truths that we see from this text from this main idea, from the crucifixion and death of Jesus, showing us who Jesus is. And remember, it's presented here in the form of irony. Number one, the crucifixion and death of Jesus proves that as Messiah, number one, Jesus is king. That's what we're seeing here very clearly. It's crying out, Jesus is king. In verses 27 through 31, Jesus is mocked by the soldiers, but how do they mock him? Well, they strip all of his clothes off. So he's standing there with, with nothing to wear. And they put on a scarlet robe, a, a, a very royal, kingly robe on a man that was just beaten and whipped and bloodied and naked. And they put a kingly robe on him. And then they take razor, needle, sharp thorns, and they turned it into a crown, and, and they just thrust it down into his cranium to so give him a crown. And they put a reed in his right hand, a hand of power, and they give him a reed to mock him as though it were a scepter for a king. And then they had the audacity to kneel before the king of glory and to laugh at him and to mock him. 
and to take a reed and to strike him on the head, thrusting the needles further down into his cranium. All to shame him, to mock him, to laugh at him. In verses 37 through 38, described that above Jesus' head, there was an inscription that said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And yet, those who put that inscription and those that were mocking him as king did not actually believe that he was the king. They were trying to shame him and to mock him. But this is Jesus we're talking about here. Let's not forget who we're reading about. This is a man who walked on water. This is a man that fed multitudes with one child's lunch. This is the man who resurrected the dead, who healed the sick, who cast out demons. This is the man who claimed to be one with the Father, who is God himself in the flesh. This is no mere man. This is the God-man, fully human, fully God, who is being whipped and ridiculed for claiming to be God. And for his followers, this must have been just a truly shocking display what they're seeing here. How could this happen to Jesus? This is a man who got up in the storm and said, peace, be still to the storm. And the storm obeyed his voice because it was a voice that the storm heard at creation. Creation itself obeys the voice of the creator. And now this creator, who is the king, is being mocked as king by people who don't actually believe it. Listen, no one present that day actually thought Jesus was the king. They didn't. How could he be a king? He was about to be crucified. Through the use of irony, the Bible is revealing the absolute truth of who Jesus is. So here's the irony of this first point. Jesus is king. Here's the irony. Mocked as king, Jesus is the king. He is the king. What's so ironic is these soldiers were kneeling before him, and one day, after those soldiers died, and they went to hell, and when they're resurrected one day, guess who they will kneel before? One day, those very same evil mockers will stand before the same man, but this time he won't be bloodied. At this point, he's going to be in full glory, displaying it for all to see that he is the king, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is king because he is. And so what you're seeing here is so powerful that through this irony, the truth is being screamed out. He is the king of glory. And it's so clear if you just turn the page. We'll look at it on Sunday morning at, on Easter at Yaz Beach for the resurrection. We'll look at the next chapter. And we'll see where it says, Matthew 28, 18. After he's resurrected, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Jesus has it all. He is the king, and he is worthy of your allegiance. 
He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our affections. He alone is worthy. And who is the church? Who, who are we, those who believe in Jesus, those who follow Jesus? You know who we are? We are members of the kingdom of Jesus. We're the ones that submit to his kingship. Jesus right now on this earth is ruling. You say, well, I don't see him. Well, he's invisible. His spirit is in us. He's in heaven. But through his spirit right now, ruling in the hearts of his people, we are the ambassadors of the king. The church is the outpost of heaven. And we are here to declare the excellencies of him who took us out of the darkness, out of slavery to Satan and to ourselves, and he has placed us in his glorious light. And so what do we do as ambassadors? We proclaim the good news of the king, that the king is alive and that he is ruling on his throne. And there is forgiveness that's available for anyone that repents and trusts in this king. And anyone that trusts in the true king alone, they too become members of the kingdom of light. And they join the church, which is the assembly of the people who joyfully follow the kingship of Jesus. That's who we are. You look around. Yes, a lot of South Africans visiting us today. We love it. We also love the Ugandans, the Kenyans, the Canadians. Yes, Canadians too. I know I'm American. No, blame Canada. It doesn't apply in the UAE. We love each other, people from all over the planet in this room. And what we're seeing is a small picture of heaven itself in the kingdom of God all made possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. And he's assembling people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so we proclaim this good news to others. We plant more churches like we're talking about. Why? Because we have a king, and we're his emissaries, his ambassadors. So the crucifixion of Jesus is proving that he is the king. Now, how does this truth, let's just bring it down to applying it. What is the implication for you and me today that he is the king? Here's, here's the implication. You can have victory. You can have victory because Jesus is the warrior king who has had victory. He's defeated the enemy at the cross and the resurrection. And so we can have victory over our daily struggles and our sinful desires and over our temptations we can be satisfied in Jesus, and through his spirits empowering us in community, we can. We don't have to live these small lives of habitual patterns of sin. Believers don't have to live like that. We can have victory. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So with his death and resurrection, he broke the power of sin. We no longer live under the domination of our sinful desires. We're no longer imprisoned to ourselves. So on the cross, we're taking notes. Not on the screens, but if you're taking notes. On the cross, what Jesus did is he endured the penalty. So Jesus endured the penalty for our sins. 
He broke, number two, the power of our sin. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been paid. And so the penalty has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. But number three, the presence of sin continues in our lives. We are not yet free of the presence of sin. That won't happen until the king returns in full glory, establishes his kingdom on earth very visibly. And when we're going to be resurrected, have glorified perfect bodies, and then finally the presence of sin will be forever removed as well. Until that day comes, we live by faith. We live through the power of his spirit, focusing on Jesus and his gospel of grace. We focus on him. We see his beauty and his majesty, the glory of our king. And you know what happens? You know what will happen to you? If you begin to truly see Jesus for who he is, you'll begin to hate your sin. The more beauty and glory you see in Jesus, the more captivated you are by Jesus, the natural result is you will hate your sin. You can't get those backwards. Don't think that by trying on your own to hate your sin, you're going to see the beauty of Jesus. You won't. You're only going to see your sin. What you focus on will dictate the direction of where you go. What you focus on. You focus on your sin, guess what you're going to do? Keep on sinning. You focus on Jesus. You see his beauty, his glory, his majesty. You, you read these words every day. You think, you meditate, you pray, you draw near to Jesus. You see him, and the result is you hate your sin. And you're empowered by the Spirit to then walk in this victory that Jesus won as a king on the cross. Jesus offers victory in this Easter. Will we gladly, joyfully follow, submit to, obey the king? Second, the crucifixion of Jesus proves that Jesus is powerful. So his death and crucifixion proves, first, that he's a king. Second, that he is powerful. Verse 32 says that he was too weak to carry the crossbar of the cross. Weighed about 15 kilograms, so not terribly heavy. But when you've been beaten and whipped and abused the way he had, he physically could not carry that 15-kilogram crossbar. Verse 35 describes that he certainly appears to be powerless to stop the soldiers from taking away his clothes and casting lots to divide it among themselves. Jesus did not stop them from driving large nails through his wrists and through his feet. He didn't stop them. And, and the soldiers certainly appeared to have power over Jesus, as you read, where they kept watch over him as he hung on the cross, dying of asphyxiation. Verses 39 through 40 further describe this perceived weakness of Jesus. Let's read those verses again, 39 and 40. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. The temple took many years to build, decades. And the people that began construction, most of them never lived long enough to see it completed. It took many, many years. And so 
to build a temple was a huge undertaking in the ancient world. Even today it would be, but even then even more so. And so to build this temple took years and years and years. And so for Jesus to say that the temple will be destroyed and in three days he'll rebuild it would be absolute, stunning, supernatural power that only God himself has. Because only God could do something so impossible to rebuild the temple in three days is unthinkable. And so Jesus was claiming God-like power to do that. And so here he's hanging on the cross, and they're mocking him and laughing at him. Look at you. You claim to have supernatural divine power, and look how weak you are, Jesus. Look how powerless you are dying on the cross. Remember, irony. Matthew is the master at using it here. The contradiction between the current situation and what the author is actually communicating. Jesus may seem weak, but he is actually the opposite. So here's the irony. The irony is that mocked as powerless, Jesus is powerful. That's what you're seeing here. The truth conveyed is that he is, in fact, supernaturally powerful. Why? Because when he talked about the, the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days, he was talking about something real, but not something physical. He was not referring to physically rebuilding the temple. When he claimed that, he was talking about his body. Well, why? Why his body? Well, what was the temple? The temple was the great meeting place. It was a great meeting place of God and sinful people. And so where sinful people would go to the temple, offer sacrifices that would remove their sin, that would make them acceptable to God. And so God would meet his people at the temple. If there was no temple, there'd be no way to have a sacrifice offered. And so that would have been a problem for the Jews. And so they understood the temple was where God would meet with them. And so Jesus, what he was saying here is that Jesus is the new great meeting place between God and sinful people. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the better final temple. Jesus is the final temple. Jesus himself is that meeting place. And so when Jesus died, it was the destruction of the temple. And when he resurrected three days later, the temple was rebuilt, so to speak. And so Jesus was talking about his own body. Jesus is our temple. We can draw near to God only through Jesus because he paid the price. And so how does this apply to you and me just in daily life? So the, the crucifixion proves that Jesus really is powerful, that he is God. But how does this apply? What is the implication for you and me? You can be secure. You can have security. Look, let's be honest. We live in a world where insecurity abounds, doesn't it? In Abu Dhabi, are you kidding me? Where contracts aren't renewed? In, in the land of insecurity, where we live, Abu Dhabi, where you perform well and you get fired? 
Like, really? Yes, really. That's Abu Dhabi. This is a sometimes challenging place to find a sense of security. It's hard. And so we live in a world where things like worry and anxiety and fear really can rule the day. And so what is a solution? What is a solution for worry and insecurity? Well, the solution for worry is to feel secure. So when you are, so security makes anxiety disappear. Think about it. If you have a small child that is panicking and crying, the second that his mommy holds him and pats his back, what happens to all the, all the fear of that child? It, it vanishes. Why? Because he felt secure. That's how we are. The moment that we feel secure, anxiety and fear just evaporate. And so what causes you anxiety? What causes you to worry? What keeps you awake at night? Worrying accomplishes exactly nothing. That's what it accomplishes. It, it doesn't help on any level. Really, you know what anxiety does? It leads us to more sin. Anxiety leads to other sins. Let me give you some examples. If you're anxious over your finances, if you're anxious over retirement or your kid's university or you're, you're worried about your job and you're anxious about, about finances, that could lead you to doing things like being greedy or coveting. So it leads to more sin. But what if you're anxious about a relationship, anxious over your marriage or a friendship or your children or whatever relationship really isn't going right? It's really struggling, and so you're really anxious and worried about a relationship. You know what that might lead you to? To being controlling or manipulative, to try to manage the person and control the, the situation. It just compounds the sin further. And so anxiety over relationships leads to even more sin in that relationship. Rather than saying, well, God, how do you want to change me? rather than how do you want to change her or him. Anxiety over maybe how someone's going to respond to a conversation. So you have to talk to someone, and you don't really want to have a conversation, and you're anxious about it. Well, that can lead you to do what? To lie or to be deceptive or give half-truths. So anxiety can lead to greater sin. But Jesus is infinitely powerful. So we can rest in him. We can be secure in Christ. We find our identity, our security in Jesus. And so what do we do? We trust in his power. We just sang, are we sovereign over us? But do we really believe that? How do we allow those words to sink in deep? That he is powerful. He is sovereign. We must run to the refuge of God's character. Well, what is God's character? He is good. He's slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. He is faithful. He is sovereign. So we run to the shelter of God's character. And we find security for our soul. Only he will satisfy our soul. Everything else will leave you hungry and thirsty. 
So we find our rest in Jesus, absolutely secure in his arms. And anxiety will vanish. It will just disappear before your eyes when we're resting in Jesus and are secure in him. Abiding in Christ, that's the key. Number three, the death and crucifixion of Jesus proves that as Messiah, three, Jesus is Savior. What's being cried out on this text is Jesus is the Savior. Remember, the religious leaders, they hated Jesus. They, they were mocking him, and it just would not end. Read verses 41 to 42 again with me. So all the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. Isn't so what they're saying? He saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down and we will believe. So they're mocking him because they believe that he can't come down from the cross. They believe that he's incapable of saving himself. He who healed the sick and resurrected the dead, he saved others. He now can't save himself. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and now he seems powerless to save himself on the cross, powerless to end this great injustice. This was really shocking. Just stop and think for a minute. He showed such power and ability to save others, and now he can't even save himself. This is just really troubling to his disciples. Evil and darkness seemed to be winning. Satan was, was, was celebrating because Jesus, the King of glory, is now dying. And with Jesus dying on the cross, how, how could he possibly save anyone else? He can't even save himself. The mockers on that day spoke more truth than they even realized. They said, Jesus saved others and he can't save himself. You know what? They were right. Not how they meant. There's the irony. Here's the irony. In order to save others, Jesus could not save himself. In order to save others, Jesus could not save himself. If Jesus had saved himself as he easily could have from the cross, there'd be no hope for you or me. There'd be no payment for sin, no sacrifice. God's wrath would still be upon us. We'd be condemned and we'd deserve it. And Jesus would have been right to save himself because he did not deserve that. We did. We do. But Jesus, who could have easily saved himself, he wanted something far greater than his comfort. Jesus wasn't after comfort. He wanted something so much greater. He wanted to see the glory of God displayed with the redemption of sinners like you and me. He was after the glory of God the Father. He was after you and me being saved so that we would worship him and we would praise him and give him all the glory. Jesus was so hungry for the glory of God that he willingly stayed on the cross and desire for God's glory and desire because he loves you. That's what kept him there. He could not save himself and obey the Father. 
He came to save sinful mockers, you and me. Jesus is Savior. That's being cried out through irony in this text. How does that impact you and me today? Let's just think. How, what is the implication of this truth for us? You can have hope. Because he is Savior, we have hope. We're all hoping in something. Trust me. Every one of you is hoping in or for something. So let me ask you this question. Don't, don't say it out loud, but think through it. Be honest with yourself. What do you most hope is in your future? When you think about tomorrow or five years or 10 years or 20 years or however many years you think you may have when God knows, when you think of the future, what are you really hoping is there? If you could look into the future and see, say, oh, I got it. Oh, that's awesome. What if you never get What if it doesn't happen? Will you lose your hope? Will you be hopeless? Would you want to keep living? If you have the approval and the presence of Jesus, you have it all. Jesus is enough for us. Jesus is better than whatever it is that you're really hoping is in the future. And we have hope in Jesus because he died and rose again. We truly do have hope. Hope that he can heal your marriage. Hope that he can give you that contract extension. Hope that your kids aren't going to be a mess when they're older. Hope that you can obey your parents tomorrow, teenagers in the room. There really is, and I don't mean to make light of this, whatever is ailing you today, there is hope. But lest we have our minds too small and focus on our little problems, because that can happen to us. It's much bigger than our felt needs. It's about the glory of God being displayed through you so that we can glorify God by making and developing disciples. That's why we Exists. So where is your hope? Number four, as we close, lastly, the crucifixion and death of Jesus proves that as the Messiah, number four, Jesus accomplished salvation. He is a Savior, and lastly, he accomplished that salvation. Verses 43 through 46. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At about 3 p.m., ninth hour, what you had here is Jesus is crying out. He and the Father have been one from eternity past. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all one God. And they're enjoying this glorious fellowship from eternity past. And yet, at this moment in time, God the Son 
Jesus was forsaken by the Father. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In anguish, where the pain of the thorns and the pain in his chest, because he couldn't hardly breathe, and the pain in his feet and his hands and his back, and all of his pain was nothing in comparison to the pain that he was experiencing at that moment. Because at that moment, the intimacy that he has always had with the Father was broken, was severed. Why? Because in that moment, God was unleashing the full weight of his holy anger on Jesus. He was unleashing, he was unloading his righteous wrath that had been stored up from day one. What he was doing is he was pouring out deserved judgment of us. All human sinfulness on the sinless, holy body of his son. Condemning Jesus for you and for me. And a holy God could not be in fellowship with sin. And so he who knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. God. He became sin in that moment. He is the perfect substitute sacrifice, and he represented you and me on the cross. And because he is infinite, because our sin against a holy God requires infinite punishment, but Jesus being an infinite, eternal person who is God himself, he could in a few moments pay for our infinite judgment in only a few moments. So he paid for it on the cross. And Jesus was entrusting himself to his father until the very end with a loud voice. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gives away, he gives up his spirit. So even in dying, he is sovereign. Even in dying, no one took his life from him. He gave it up. To his dying moment, complete control of everything, including in your life. So what you have here, the irony of these mockers is they're saying, he trusts in God, mocking him for it. But the truth is that Jesus did trust in God. So here's the irony of this point. Jesus cries out in agony, but he trusts God. The disciples were shocked at what was happening. How could Jesus die? They thought he was the Messiah. They thought he really was the king. They believed in him. And you just know that when he was hanging on the cross, can't you just feel John there next to Mary? And John, he must have been saying in his head, come on, Jesus. Come on. I know you can. Just come down from there and show that you are the Son of God. You can't die. But he did. And they were confused. They didn't understand why. They didn't understand how Jesus could have died, shocking, and yet they should have known because in Matthew several times, if you read throughout the book, 
Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. He tells them, I'm going to die and be resurrected. He told them it would happen more than once. And if that wasn't enough, you have a whole body of Jewish scripture, what we call the Old Testament, a whole body of work, Old Testament, that was clearly showing what was going to happen with the Messiah. They should have known. We read earlier in the worship gathering from Psalm 22, a prophetic text, thousand years before Jesus was born. And we read this. David cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who seek me mock me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They have divided my garments and they cast lots. Sound familiar? Everything that was happening with the crucifixion and death of Jesus was foretold. God wasn't shocked. God wasn't surprised. All of those evil men and mockers, what they were doing was the will of God. And yet, they're accountable for their sin. Yes, divine tension. Our minds can hardly get around that. But by faith, we affirm it. And we believe it. What you're seeing here is God is proving his sovereignty. And he is accomplishing redemption. So the crucifixion and death of Jesus, his resurrection proves that he is the Savior. He accomplished it. So how does it impact you and me today? What is the implication for this truth? You can trust Jesus. You can trust him. Again, we'll look at this, Matthew 28, on Sunday morning. But Jesus is not dead. He's alive and well. He's resurrected. He is the king. He is powerful. He is the savior, and he accomplished it with his death, burial, and resurrection. Are you trusting in Jesus? Have you ever with your whole heart, your whole soul, turned away, repented of your sins, and said, I cannot save myself. Jesus, I trust in you alone and the work you did on the cross. And this doesn't apply to just Christians from, quote, Christian nations. This is absolute, total truth for all people of every ethnicity, of every religious background. This is the truth of who God is and who we are. Have you ever truly trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? You can today. And you can experience joy that I can't even explain it to you. But if you'll trust Jesus, give your life to him, his spirit will come into you. He'll begin to transform you and you will taste and you will see that God is good. You will fellow believer in Jesus on this Good Friday and this Easter weekend, are you continuing every day to trust in Jesus? Even when it's hard, even when you're disappointed, even when you feel like you just can't go one more step, when you're confused, don't understand what exactly God is doing in and through your life, do we trust him? Is Jesus enough? Is our vision of God really small, or do we have a big vision of who our sovereign God is? We must see the beauty of Jesus to be transformed. It's the only way. The cross proves that God loves you. If you doubt that he loves you, look to the cross. He proved it on the cross. May we never get used to this message 
a lot of us are longtime believers, church background. May we never grow so accustomed to this that it no longer impacts us. Maybe this Easter, we'll rediscover and see with fresh eyes the wonder of Jesus and his work for us on the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, we are truly humbled this morning that we could approach you, though we don't deserve it. We thank you for Jesus, his work on the cross. We thank you for you are so good. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us this faith family to pursue you with. I ask that you would bless and that you would help anyone right now in this room who is grappling with these truths. May they truly repent of their sins with their whole soul, trust in you. May we be transformed this Easter, Father. We need you. We pray in the name of your Son, our King Jesus. Amen.